Hello Convention of States podcast listeners. This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. In February of 2023, Convention of States President Mark Meckler, as well as former presidential candidate Rick Santorum, headline a town hall in Moines, Iowa. Let me just start by welcoming you here tonight and thanking you for being here. You know, I have a rare privilege as an American citizen to travel all over the country, and especially this time of year, I spend the great majority of my time on the road, going from state to state, meeting people in state legislatures, talking to media, and most importantly, talking with folks like you all over the country. And I come at the fight that's going on in America right now from a different perspective than most people I see. I mean, definitely when I watch the news, if if it's anything like the news that, uh, if you're watching the same kind of news I'm watching, it's pretty depressing. And it really doesn't matter which channel you're watching, which host you listen to, uh, what newspaper you read, the perspective tends to be very dark on what's going on in this country. And I admit uh, openly, there's a lot of darkness going on in the country right now. But my perspective from traveling across the country is different than that in the sense that I actually see a lot of light in the country right now. And the reason that I see and feel that light is because I get the chance to meet and be with and converse with people like you all over the country. And it actually doesn't matter where I am in the country, whether it's literally New York City, San Francisco, places you wouldn't normally think of as the lightest places in the country, or here in Des Moines, I meet great patriots everywhere I go. And for that reason, I'm hopeful for what's going on in our nation. Now, again, the times are dark. People are very divided. We have a lot of black and white in this country, politically speaking, and that means that there's going to be a lot of conflict, but conflict is also a chance for us to draw out the differences and see them clearly. In times when there isn't so much conflict, when the darkness is not so self-evident, it's easy to lull ourselves into a sense of complacency. And I think we've done that over the modern history of the United States of America. The generation, I would argue, now in power in the United States of America, people my age, I'll be 61 years old next month, uh, we've seen an era of relative prosperity and peace like almost nothing we've seen in the history of the United States. And that means sometimes I think that we forget, and I mean that the collective we, I don't mean you because you're here tonight and you're doing your part, but we collectively forget what Reagan so profoundly said, which is the, that flame of liberty is never more than one generation away from extinction and that every generation has to fight to preserve liberty in America. And so that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a position where, of course, because it's inevitable, because of human nature, that liberty is at stake. We find ourselves in a place that, i got to be honest with you, I never expected to find myself because we live in an era when communism is once again on the march. I I remember my first vote was for Ronald Reagan. I was 18 years old. I had a chance to vote for him for president. It greatly, obviously, influenced my politics for my whole life. But I remember the Berlin Wall coming down, and I remember that that was the end of communism, right? The Iron Curtain fell. And capitalism reigned supreme, freedom reigned supreme, freedom was going to bloom all across the planet. And yet if we look back today, I would argue the communists won the Cold War. If you look, our institutions have been taken over by communists, people who, some who openly profess it, some who won't call themselves communists, but profess communist ideology, and they have taken over our schools from kindergarten through 12th. They've taken over our colleges, our postgraduate educations. They've taken over the federal government itself at some of the highest levels and most of the agencies. 
They own the media. They own the corporate structure today. If that's what it looks like when we win the Cold War, I don't want any part of that kind of winning. But that's where we find ourselves, and we find ourselves at a place in American history right now, which is a very dangerous place, which is a place where the federal government has radically consolidated power. When the union was founded, when this country was formed back in 1787, we ended up with a constitution that was based on the idea of federalism. What is federalism, really? And I'm going to simplify it because I'm a simple guy. Federalism is a government designed for people who really don't like each other very much. And we might not think of it that way because we have, I think, a very purified, sanitized view of our history. But Americans have always disliked each other. The colonies disliked each other before they were states. They gathered together and they linked arms and they fought a war together because there was an existential threat in the form of the king who in parliament who were going to impose on the colony something that they were not willing to take. So they joined together and they fought a war. And normally when people go to battle together, they come out of a battle and they're brothers in arms and they, you know, now they trust each other. You had regiments from Massachusetts and Kentucky fighting side by side and you would think when they were done that they would come out and we would be a unified country. And in fact, we weren't. When they came out of the American Revolution successful after all those years, eight years of warfare, of open warfare, when they came out, they hated each other. They, they didn't trust each other. They had disdain for each other, so much so that they gave us the Articles of Confederation, which was a government that basically said, I don't trust you, I don't like you, I don't really want to be in a country with you, I'm not going to give you any power over me or the folks in my state, so we're not going to do anything together. And we all know the story. It didn't work. And it didn't work because there were still existential threats in the world. There were things that we needed to do together as a nation, and we hadn't given the nation power to do those things. So men gathered in Philadelphia in 1787, and they they got together and they said that we're going to have a constitutional convention. We are going to talk about what we have to do in order to have a cohesive country that can face off against the existential threats in the world. And I want to correct something right now because I hear this all the time. It is the greatest slander issued against the great framers of our Constitution. Might be some people in the audience that believe this because you've heard it over and over. And that is the idea that the 1787 convention was a runaway convention. That these men that we describe as men full of honor and virtue, men that we revere as wise men, as humble men, that these men had instructions to only amend the Articles of Confederation and then just decided to do whatever they wanted to do and draft an entirely new constitution. And the truth is, and this has been definitively studied, definitively researched, I can give you the sites at Harvard uh, Harvard Review of Business and Law, and there's about an 85, 87-page law review article showing that those men had the authority to do exactly what they did. That their commission said that they had any and all authority necessary to render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. And they gave us, in that convention, out of the rancor, out of the distrust, out of the dislike of each other, a government based on federalism, which is a government for people who don't really like each other very much. See, Mississippi is different than New York, and that's different than Iowa, and it's different than California. And all these states with different cultures, different dialects, different regional likes and dislikes, different political ideologies, we can get along as long as we don't have to fit and sit under and fit under a one-size-fits-all government. 
If we're going to do that, if we're going to leave the power in Washington, D.C., as some say we ought to do, as some are not willing to fight against, if we leave the power in Washington, D.C., this country will tear itself apart. That much is inevitable. The great decoupling is taking place, and it is inevitable, and the question is, how does the country come apart? Some people, maybe even some in this room, would suggest that we should have secession. I heard Marjorie Taylor Greene today saying, we need a divorce between the red states and the blue states. I would like somebody to explain to me how that happens in a way that doesn't look like Ukraine. If you believe that we should have a civil war, or we need a revolution, we need social unrest to tear the country apart, I ask you to spend the time and watch the videos of what's going on in a modern country involved in all-out warfare. And I ask you, are you willing to pull your neighbor's children or your own children out from the wreckage of your house? Because that is the way of secession and revolution and civil war. And we are blessed because our framers knew that was a possibility. Our framers absolutely knew that we were going to get into a situation where the federal government got out of control, wouldn't listen to the people, wouldn't be responsive anymore, and they gave us in the second clause of Article 5 a way to deal with it. And they said, if you come to this point, what you should do is call a convention of states and impose your will, you people of the states, through your state legislatures, on an out-of-control Congress. And we have the absolute power to do this. Your legislatures were given that power. And the only question that we have to ask ourselves today is, do we have the fortitude to do that? Do we have the fortitude, the will, the ability the desire to stand in the shoes of the framers of our Constitution, the founders of this country, and everybody who's fought to keep it since, and do the one thing that we can do to push back against the power in Washington, D.C. And I say we do have that fortitude. 19 states, 19 and a half states, if you count Wyoming, possibly 20 here in the next couple of weeks, have already done that, have demonstrated that fortitude. I hear when I travel around, it's too scary, it's too dangerous. The risks, Mark, the risks. And when I hear that, this is what I think. I'm so glad that those people were not called upon to fight the American Revolution because we'd still be speaking the king's English today. It was risky back then what those men did. Much more risky than what we're being asked to do. Those men who signed the Declaration of Independence signed their own death warrants. They committed actual treason. Their family businesses were destroyed, their farms were destroyed, families killed for what they did. We're being asked to exercise a constitutional right given to us by the framers of the Constitution. You have a pretty vivid imagination. I like to imagine myself talking to the framers of the Constitution, the founders. Sometimes I think about this, and, and I think probably, yeah, he might not be my favorite framer, my favorite founder, but the guy that I think I would like to talk to the most is Dr. Benjamin Franklin. And I think the reason I'd like to talk to him is he was such a man of the world. Uh, he was very smart. He was a Renaissance man. He knew so many different things. And I imagine myself maybe sitting in an alehouse in Philadelphia, knocking back a pint with old Ben. And I imagine myself describing to Ben Franklin where we're at right now, that we have Obamacare in force, that Congress has never repealed that, that our borders are open, that the federal government is involved in healthcare and education and energy and the environment and on and on and on, and that I am sick and tired of it. And imagine Dr. Franklin would ask me, well, what about Article 5? Mr. Meckler, why haven't you used Article 5? And I imagine my humiliation and my embarrassment as I tell him, well, Dr. Franklin, you know, there's a, a bunch of people that say it's just too scary. 
And I think he would slam down his pint of ale and he would tell me to leave and he would tell me to look him up another time after we had the fortitude to stand in the shoes of the framers and the founders who gave so much. And that's why Senator Santorum and I are here today. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm doing what I've been doing for nine and a half years, which is traveling the country, speaking to people like you, entertaining the discussions, listening to the objections, over and over, the same objections, the same answers, everything that's on our website, but I'm willing to do it because in the end, I don't know what happens to our country. None of you do, none of us do. Only one knows, and he's the creator and our Lord and Savior, and he knows. We don't know. What I do know is this, that we have an obligation to fight. I know that duty is ours and that the results belong to God. I came to Convention of States as a solution because I tried politics, because I was part of the Tea Party movement that elected the largest class, swing class in the history of Congress since 1938, and I watched them go in and I watched them get eaten by the swamp. In minutes, some of them. Hours, days, months. Very few of them lasted. There are a couple of notables, but almost all of that class of 2010, we lost them to the swamp. And I thought there has to be a better way. And if I'm gonna engage in politics, I've got to have an answer that's more than let's just keep doing the same thing. I'm gonna close with this and I'm gonna turn it over to the senator. I hear over and over as I travel the country from people who object to what we're doing that, you know what? We just need to elect better people. That's the solution. And my answer to that is, how's that working for you? How has that ever worked for us? Every single government in the history of the United States of America, with the exception of Calvin Coolidge's government, has grown the size and scope of the federal government. And yeah, that includes Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. So if that's not working, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. And so I challenge you to be sane, to get into the fight, to call a convention of states, to take the power away from the federal government and to return it to where it belongs here in Iowa. Thank you guys, I'll turn it over to Senator Santorum. Hello. There we go, okay. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm gonna get out a little bit there so I can see people, because with those lights I couldn't see anybody. Um, thank you all for coming out. Um, I have to tell you, it's great to be back in Iowa. I, Spent a lot of time here, and as, as many of you know, and for those of you who voted for me, thank you very much. I am forever grateful. It was one of the great experiences of my life. Uh, for those of you who voted for, uh, for Mitt Romney back in 2012, I told you so. <laughs> That's all I gotta say. Just if a handful more had voted for me then, it would have been a whole different story. I'd have won on caucus night, but we're not rehashing history here tonight. But it's, it is great to be back, and uh, I just, I always have to say this. Uh, you know, I came here as a, uh, a guy who had lost my last election by the largest margin of any incumbent senator in 30 years when I ran for president in 2012. And I came here to Iowa, and the people were great. I mean, it just, they just opened their, opened their arms and, and you know, welcomed me and, um, and gave me the opportunity. And I'll be forever grateful for that and um, very, very appreciative. So it's always a pleasure and honor to come back and, and visit with you. Uh, I wanted to start by just reading Article 5 
uh, the relevant points of Article 5, where it talks about um, the uh, amendment of the Constitution. The article is right there. You see it? It's pretty short, very small. It says, the Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to the Constitution. That's happened successfully 27 times. The first 10 amendments, called the Bill of Rights, right after the Constitution was approved, and then, um, then subsequent to that. Some people say, oh, the Constitution was perfect when it was written. Well, half the people in this room couldn't vote under the original Constitution. And, and others couldn't vote under the original Constitution. People of color couldn't vote under the original Constitution. In fact, you have the, all, all sorts of changes that were made that freed the slaves, allowed women to vote, changed the rules for electing United States senators, put an income tax in place. I mean, there have been lots of changes to this Constitution, good and bad. But the idea that the Constitution should never be changed, no one ever believed that. Um, and so they provided for a way for the Congress to amend. But the founders understood this real truth, which is people who have power seek more power. Does anyone not believe that? That people who are given power, all you have to do is go to a TSA agent and see what power, a little bit of power does, right? You give people power, they seek more power. That is human nature. It is human nature. And they knew that. So they knew that if they just gave Congress the power to amend the Constitution, well, we'd be in trouble. Right? You can't have the, you know, the fox running the hen house. And so they added at the last, toward the end of the convention, they added a second clause. And if you read the, the founding, what, what is there is very clear. Every amendment that was offered to this Constitution was debated hotly. Divisions, coastal states versus inland states, frontier states versus more developed states, small states versus big states, north versus south. There were all sorts of coalitions. And hardly any amendment was approved without tough debate and very close votes. Read the history. Except one, this one, this amendment. And this amendment says, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states. So this convention that we're talking about is a constitutionally provided provision that was unanimously adopted by the convention, written about in the Federalist Papers as, well, of course we have to have somebody. If you look at the, the entire convention, it was all about checks and balances. The president was going to check the Congress. The Congress was going to check the president and the courts. And the courts would check... They were worried about one branch of government getting out of control, particularly the president. And they wanted places to check this power. And so that's why they put this in here. They put this in here with the recognition of this and another provision, which allowed for the state legislatures to appoint senators. Both of those were put in for one reason. They wanted the states 
to be at the top of the power structure in this country. In particular, the state legislatures. Because in both cases, this one, no governor needs to sign this resolution. No governors are involved in this. No governor was involved in the appointment, well, unless the legislature gave it up, but the legislature determined who the senders were unless they gave up that power, which they eventually did with the 17th Amendment. But they put the legislature in charge because they, by the way, do you know what all of the delegates to the convention were? Almost all. State legislators. They trusted them. They weren't members of the Continental Congress or the, or the, or the, or the Confederation. They trusted the states. They wanted the power to lay, lay in the states. And until the 17th Amendment, when the legislatures gave up the power to appoint senators, the Senate checked Washington. Look at what the federal budget was in 1913. It was, Washington was a nondescript backwater town that nobody paid any attention to. It had no power, had no money, didn't have an income tax, didn't have property taxes, didn't have sales taxes. They had excise taxes on alcohol. That was their largest amount of money they collected. What we're saying here with this debate is asking the legislatures to reassert themselves into checking Washington, D.C. Now, are they going to be perfect at doing so? Are they going to be eminently wise and proper in doing so? No more than any other legislative body is perfect in doing anything. But it's important to understand that the power is here. That people say, oh, we're afraid of this. You're afraid of the state legislature saying to a Congress, stop whatever they want them to stop doing. What's to be afraid of? The reality is that as Mark said, they would not be surprised that Washington has accumulated power. That a president can stand up two weeks before the election, wave his pen, and abolish a half a trillion dollars in debt of a group of students who, by the way, would go to the polls in the next two weeks and remarkably vote heavily in favor of the president's party. That, that, didn't, that I'm sure, would not have surprised them. What surprises them is not people who have been given power take more power. What surprises them is people who are given power who refuse to use it to save the country. That's what would surprise them. Now, I want to say, before we get to questions, I want to say something about the folks who oppose. Because, you know, I, I read the literature of those who comment about what we're up to, what Convention States is all about, and claim all these nefarious things. I just want to tell you that the organization I belong in and the movement I belong in, the people who did what I did before me was a guy named Tom Coburn. Go look up Senator Tom Coburn and look at someone who was a beacon of conservatism and, and, and truth in a very dark town of Washington, D.C. He stood up and was an amazing beacon of fiery truth in freedom and opportunity for this country. 
And before him, who did what I'm doing with a senior advisor at Convention State, was Jim DeMint. Now, I don't know if you look at Jim DeMint, Tom Coburn, and Rick Santorum, and you look at our record of fighting Washington, D.C., I'll match it with any three who's been in Washington over the last 50 years. Now, here's three, I would say, stalwart conservative guys who have fought Washington and bled fighting Washington. And we have some folks coming up here and saying, oh, well, we're really a backroom plot to destroy the country. Really. That's, that's what I've saved up all my life to do, right? That's why I've gone out and fought the battles I've fought and, and taken the slings and arrows so I could someday come back and destroy the country. I don't say that the people on the other side are bad people. I don't think they have a nefarious purpose. I think they're wrong on the way they read Article 5. I think they're wrong in not trusting the state legislatures to come together and to do their duty when they're called on to do their duty. I think they're wrong. But I don't think they're bad people. I think they're afraid. I get it. Change is hard. When you're a conservative and you're asked to do something different, the knee-jerk reaction is, no, because you're a conservative. I get it. That's what my reaction was. For eight years, I didn't support this. But I saw things happening in Washington that made me look again. And I would ask you to do the same. What we've seen happen in Washington is not just more of the same over the past 10, 15 years. It is not more of the same. When I left the United States Senate, the national debt was around 10 or $11 trillion. It's now $32 trillion and growing by trillions of dollars every year. The CBO, Congressional Budget Office, just projected $1 trillion deficits for as far as the eye can see. Now, you can say, well, we just need to elect better people. Ladies and gentlemen, the biggest add to the debt over a four-year period of time was Donald Trump. You could say it was the pandemic. Well, that's my point. Even good people can overreact and do bad things. Even good people that you think are trying to do the right thing end up not doing the right thing because there's no reason not to spend money in Washington. There just isn't. There's no cry from the, from the hinterlands to reduce the deficit. You saw Republicans at the State of the Union address say, no, no, we won't touch Medicare and Social Security. We won't touch them. They all sat there and know that both those programs are going bankrupt within the next 10 years, and they all say they're not going to do anything about it. These are the people. And by the way, it was everybody. It wasn't just a handful of Republicans. It was every Republican. Even those, some of you, I'm saying, you're, are great conservative warriors, Freedom Caucus, they all said, oh, no, no, we're not going to do anything. Don't tell me that if we do nothing, things are going to get better. I live there. That's a lie. Now, you can say, well, I'm more afraid of your state representatives coming together to simply propose amendments, not pass amendments. This gives them the power to propose amendments. Congress can propose amendments tomorrow. 
No one's going out there saying, oh, we shouldn't let them do that. No, they can do it tomorrow. And you're saying, no, we don't want our House and senators to do that. Just let Congress do it. And by the way, under our proposal, they're limited as to what they can propose. Congress can propose anything. Tomorrow. But we're afraid to have the folks who are closest like you who, by the way, in order to get a convention called, you need 34 states to pass a resolution, the resolution that has now passed 19 states, which allows for limiting terms of federal office holders, limiting spending and taxation, and limiting the power and jurisdiction of the government. That's what this would call for. They could do nothing else. You say, well, we don't know that. The Congress can do anything right now. This has limits. If you look at the history of, of conventions of states, those limits have been held to. They have not been violated. Every member will take an oath that they will abide by that limit. So you're saying they're going to break their oath. In most states, there are laws in place that if you break your oath, you can be held for criminal penalties, fines, and jail. Much less going to the biggest national convention in the history of this country and betraying your oath in front of God and country and then having to come back to your state legislative district and explain why you did that. That isn't going to happen. I don't know what country you live in that you think that people will come to Washington in the light of day at the biggest event in the history of our country. They're charged with the task under oath to do something to limit the power of the federal government, and somehow they're going to go rogue. And by the way, once they go rogue, that proposed amendment has to get ratified by 38 states, which means 13 legislative bodies in 13 states, just one house in 13 states can block anything from ever happening. Look at the amendments that have passed and been ratified. All of them had huge bipartisan and popular support. That's how you amend the Constitution. You don't get crazy ideas to get 38 states to ratify. It doesn't happen. The better argument, if you're going to make an argument against doing this, is it's probably a waste of time because you probably can't get 38 states to agree what day it is. You certainly can't get them to agree what a man and a woman is. So what's the fear? What's the concern? Do we really look that lowly upon our elected officials? Maybe there's a good reason to. I don't know. I don't. Not because I think they're anything different than any of you sitting out here. But here's what I do know. The greatest generation wasn't the greatest generation because they happened to be the greatest group of people born during that time of the 1940s. They weren't great because they were just happened to be great. They were great because they were met with a great challenge and they rose at the time their country called them to meet that challenge and win. 
just like the founders did. The times make the people, not the other way around. And ladies and gentlemen, we're in a time. And here's what we know, that the people in Washington are not rising to the occasion. They are doing just the opposite. They are running. They are consolidating power. Every left-wing group in America, every one is against this, what we're trying to do. Every one. You feel comfortable being with every progressive organization in America, spouting the same talking points that I heard, got handed to me on the way in? Every conservative constitutional scholar of any note, radio talk show host from Simon here in, in Des Moines and Steve Dace here in Des Moines, to Rush Limbaugh, God rest his soul, and Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck and Mark Levin and gone down the list. Every conservative thought leader believes, including Antonin Scalia, believes this was drafted for such a time as this. And all I can say to you is, I know Iowans. I know I'm not an Iowan, but as a non-Iowan, I know Iowa is about as well as anybody. And I know you're not afraid to lead. I don't come to Iowa and think fear. I don't think that. No, you folks have common sense and uncommon courage to confront problems. I just hope that you believe in yourselves and those that you've elected to do their duty and take the power that the founders gave them to save this country. Thank you. So I look around the room here and I see, I see a room full of patriots, people of goodwill. I assume everyone in this, in this auditorium loves their country. And I'd ask us all to assume that of each other. Um, I, I assume that I'm in a room full of people who, I don't think anybody in this room probably disagrees that the federal government is out of control and spending and on its overreach. So. We're here to discuss an option to, to solve that um, and not debate those issues, and I, I hope we can do it in, in a manner of goodwill. And we'll take some questions. All right. First one's directed to you, Mr. Meckler. What's that? Well, our four... Our, our form is that we're going to do the questions, and you'll see by the first question here, we're not screening them and taking out the ones we don't like. It's dr uh, the first question is written to Mr. Meckler. He's, you're going to see that it's not, we're not softballing the questions here. Why won't Mark Meckler debate Robert Brown? Say that again. Why won't Mark Meckler debate Robert Brown? <laughs> you know, first, I get asked this question all over the country, and I just want to say this to start. For all the people who come up to me and say, Robert Brown wants to debate you, I know. <laughs> he definitely wants to debate me. He's made that really clear. In fact, last year, and I have the videotape, I just want to be clear because I'm going to say something that might sound outrageous, but last year I ran into him here in the Iowa legislature down by the cafeteria, and I got him on film actually saying to me, it's not a hidden camera or anything. I asked him if he, he was willing to say it publicly, 
and he said that we're just like the Nazis, and that we're involved in the big lie like the Nazis were. And I'm just going to be honest with you, somebody like that just doesn't, first of all, doesn't have credibility. Like, if that's the kind of rhetoric that you're going to use, as Bill said, our opponents are, are not evil people, they're, they're not bad people. I think they're wrong on this subject matter, but I'm not accusing them of being Nazis. And I'm going to say on a very personal level, as a Jewish Christian, that's pretty offensive. And so number one, I generally don't even engage in conversation with people like that, let alone bring them on a stage with me to have a debate. Number two is Senator Santorum and I and those in our organization, we get asked, not exaggerating, hundreds of times a year to debate. Mr. Brown represents the John Birch Society. If you want to see a debate with the John Birch Society, with Michael Ferris and representatives of the John Birch Society, it's online, it's on our website. We debate literally now every single week across the United States of America and legislatures all over this country. That's where the real debate is and that's where it should take place. So we're happy to engage in those debates. We do it over and over and over again. But that's why I don't give Mr. Brown his time in the limelight. Number one, as a person who accuses of being Nazis, he doesn't deserve it. We can't debate everybody who wants to debate us. Thank you. So this will echo something that was already mentioned in your opening comments. Uh, was this, it may be elaborate further on the 19, uh, 1787 convention and why it was not a runaway. Well, I mean, uh, Mark elaborated on it and he said something, he sort of glossed over a little bit, but we actually have, the archivists have commissions from the states. And this is what people, again, don't understand is that the states knew things weren't working. So they called in a convention. First, they called it in Annapolis. The states called for a convention. And in Annapolis to deal with trade and some, some other commercial interests that were, were a problem. Uh, I don't remember which state called, but it wasn't Virginia, it was another state. And very few people showed up and, it, and the convention never happened. And because the states, very clear from reading history, that the states realized that the Article of Confederation were not sufficient. They weren't working and they didn't want to come and just meet on a very limited basis. So Virginia, led by George Washington, called for a convention, put out another call for a general convention. At the time, seven states fairly quickly signed up because Washington would be there. And when seven of the 13 colonies signed up, a majority, the Congress, sitting Congress under the Articles of Confederation said, well, we want to get in on this. And they passed a resolution saying, well, you know, we're calling for a, a convention to uh, amend the Articles of Confederation. But that's not what the convention was being called by. It wasn't being called by them. It was being called by the states, which have a right to call for a convention. Remember, the federal government did not create the states. The states created the federal government. The states are sovereign entities. The states can call for conventions. There have been 30, over 30 conventions of states where the states, most, almost all regionally, although one was not, almost all regionally have called conventions. They have the right as sovereign entities to call for conventions. Not under Article 5, but on, uh, just as the sovereign beings, if you will, sovereign states. 
And so when you look at the commissions from all of the states, they are, as Mark said, I, I don't remember the language, you remember the language better than I do, but it's to do pretty much anything at all to amend or, or replace the Articles of Confederation. So the idea that this was somehow a runaway convention and all we we're going to do is, you know, no one will pay attention to the rules. It's just not, if you look at the history of states, conventions of states, they do follow the rules. These are legal sovereign entities. These are states, and they're not going to freewheel it. Certainly not when trying to conduct a convention under Article 5, which is limited in purpose to what the article requires them to do. And I, I want to add just the absurdity of the idea that 1787 was a runaway. You know, all of us, I assume everybody in this room has some measure of rever reverence for the framers of the Constitution. Something extraordinary happened in that room. And one thing we all know, times have changed a lot since then. Honor and, and virtue were held in the highest esteem. In fact, in many places, it was legal to have a duel and actually kill somebody who insulted your honor. And now I want you to imagine George Washington sitting in that famous chair. You've all seen the image of the chair. Franklin says you know, he knew not whether it was a rising or setting sun on the back of the chair. Washington presiding over a convention with the likes of Franklin, Adams, and Madison. And now we did, on the other side of your brain, have a, some, a completely incongruent version of that, which is there are a bunch of scallywags who care not about honor or virtue and who just say, ah, I know we were told to do one thing, but let's just blow that off and do whatever the heck we want. And that is an outrageous slander against the framers of the United States Constitution, and it's issued from one breath to the next by people who say they revere those men, but then those, I'm now using my words, those men were a bunch of scumbags who had no honor and virtue. It just doesn't make any sense. 1787 definitively, it's been proven. You could read the commissions for yourself. You can read Mike Ferris's law review article. You can read Rob Nadelson's works. 1787 was not a runaway convention. I'll tell you, I'll spend the rest of my life working to clear the honor of the framers against those who slandered them. So I've heard that we don't follow the current constitutions. Why would we follow this? Is the CUS limited, and second point to that is, or is it limited to the three points that you've mentioned in the, in the resolution? Yeah. Uh, again, I, I understand that line of logic, which is, you know, you say that the Constitution hasn't been followed. But this isn't the Constitution anymore. Well, this is the Constitution. If, if, you, if you order a constitution from the general printing office, this is what you get. I mean, what, unless you don't believe it, it says on the spine right here, Constitution of the United States of America. And you say, well, wait a minute, how can that be the Constitution of the United States? Well, over 250 years, there have been amendments. Obviously, that's not just amendments, but there are court cases. And you have a group of people, and you know who they are, who believe that the Constitution is a living, breathing document, that it can mean whatever we want it to mean. And so what's happened over the past 100 years, maybe 90 years, since the New Deal court, is the courts have systematically amended the Constitution. And when I say the courts, I mean the progressives on the court, or the liberals, now progressives, on the court. They have amended the Constitution. And by the way, the left has no interest in doing a convention of states. 
because they don't need to. They just elect five, they just nominate and appoint and approve five justices and they amend it themselves any way they like. We see it over and over and over again. Now, fortunately, there is a conservative bare majority on the court right now, but you won't see big changes in the power and scope of government changing under those five or six justices. Why? Because they're conservative. They tend not to make changes. They tend not to, they got, obviously with the Dobbs decision, they got rid of Roe versus Wade, but that was a legal abomination from the very beginning. But you're not going to see them repeal the Commerce Clause cases. You're not going to see them get rid of all of these other cases. You saw John Roberts with Obamacare bend over backwards to allow the government to do things. To expect a conservative court to take us back to more of the original understanding of the Constitution is, again, whistling through the graveyard at night. There's no evidence that that will happen. It could get a little better on the margins. But we see a continual consolidation of power in Washington, and the courts aren't going to stop it. They may slow it down, but they're not going to stop. They're certainly not going to reverse it. And so that's why it's important to understand that when you say, well, they're not following the Constitution, they are. Congress is following the Constitution most of the time. So when they pass a bill that says, you know, you, you have to do something with Article, uh, Title IX and your kids and impose these ridiculous regulations that Trump repealed and now Biden has put back in place, you say, well, how can they do that? They have no power to oversee education. They, they don't. But what they do have is money. And so they say, well, you can do whatever you want, but if you want this money, then you got to do this. And the courts have said that's okay because they're not mandating them. It's just that your local school boards and your states take the money and they're willing to live with the policies. And so the reality is that the only way to change that is to pass an amendment to the Constitution that says that is not a proper understanding of the Constitution. To go after specifically these abuses of power. And that, to me, I don't know what to be afraid of there. And, and by the way, I think there's actually a chance in some of these cases where even some on the left may agree. Because what I found is that even some, like states like California, Massachusetts, are just as afraid of a conservative coming in like Betsy DeVos and changing the rules that affect their state as Iowa may be if Joe Biden comes in and changes rules to affect their state. So they may say, well, you know what, maybe we'll just keep them out when it comes to this stuff. So... You never know what could happen, but the most likely thing at a convention of states is that not much will happen. And if you catch a break, maybe a few good things. I, one of the things I always talk about is, that I think could happen, is that a proposal to limit the Supreme Court to nine justices could actually not just get proposed, but actually get ratified by the states. And would that be a big deal? Yeah, it would be a very big deal. And, I, and it's something that I think Democrats would actually support. So think about what's possible. 
People think about all the extreme things that happen. Constitutional amendment processes are not extreme. They are, by definition, broadly popular ideas. Otherwise, they don't get proposed, and they certainly have no chance of being ratified. Okay, I'm going to wrap, try to wrap. We've got a lot of questions, so I'm going to try to wrap some of these into um, process questions on the convention and kind of. And I'd say we'll try and keep our answers short. Yes. So you have a former That's presidential right. candidate, and we're both lawyers, so I'm not. <laughs> I'm not taking bets on that. So, so overarching is kind of the. Somebody asked about the, like the top three objections or reasons that you hear against the convention of state and responses, but I think if I ask you some of these other process questions, sure. it's, going to, it's going to hit on some of those. So, you know, one is, one is uh, you, can, you, can you prove beyond a doubt that a convention of states can only address the three subjects? Can we limit it to those three subjects? And uh, what power and jurisdiction issues could, could be addressed in there? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what somebody means when they say prove beyond a doubt. I mean, my answer is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, here's one way. There have been over 400 applications in the history of the United States of America for a convention of states. It takes only 34 applications to call a convention, two-thirds of the states, right? So if there have been over 400, then why haven't we had a convention yet? And the answer is because it's well known, it's completely and totally accepted by everybody, including Congress, that the convention can be limited in scope to whatever a state, the 34 states say that it can be. If what I were saying is untrue in any way, we'd have had multiple conventions, Article 5 conventions in the history of the United States of America. So this is just known and accepted and it is just the way it is. And so when folks say well, they can do whatever they want, that doesn't make any sense. Also, I just want you to understand the structure of how this works. This is important. When we go to convention, it means 34 states which is a super majority of the states in convention, presuming all 50 states go, 34 states will have agreed in advance on boundaries for that convention. And those states, those 34 states, will have commissioned their delegates and given them those same boundaries. The only authority that the legislatures of those 34 states have is what they passed in their resolution, which is the three subject matter areas. So they will commission their delegates uh, according to those three subject matter areas, no more, maybe less, they can restrict their delegations, but certainly no more. And so the idea that you now have 34 states have agreed in advance what the terms are, which is a supermajority, they've all commissioned their delegates according to that supermajority, the idea that something else is gonna happen, it doesn't make any sense. And I would actually flip that question on its head and say, can you prove to me that there's going to be a runaway convention? And so look, I'm, I'm gonna say what Patrick Henry said during the famous give me liberty or give me death speech. Most people know that line, they don't know most of the speech. My favorite line of the speech is he says, I have no other lamplight by which my feet can be guided other than the lamplight of history. And the lamplight of history in this case tells us that Congress won't call unless 34 states agree. If 34 states agree, we do know there were 10, sorry, 11 states uh, or 11 conventions of states before the 1787 convention. There's 30 plus since the 1787 convention. There is never, really important, never in all caps, been a runaway convention in the history of the United States of America. So I think that's pretty definitive. I, I would just add one other thing. Every one of those delegates takes an oath to live by the commission they swore to. And I, I know you may not think much of state legislatures, Okay, but you're talking about elected officials taking an oath not to exceed their authority. 
going to Washington at the most, again, <laughs> the biggest convention in the history of our country, in front of God and country, and they're going to abdicate their oath. They're, and by the way, most states, like I said, can, with, can pull those delegates back. So they, so they abdicate their responsibility. They try to exceed their authority. They get yanked back to, and they get withdrawn from their delegation. What do they achieve? I mean, this, is, this, this just makes, I have no, no offense, this makes no sense whatsoever. All I'm saying is, sir, the oath of office that we're talking about here is a specific oath to live by the limitations of this convention. It's not a congressional term where you're there for two years or 10 years or 30 years and there are questionable issues raised as to what is constitutional and what's not. That's not the issue. The issue is, the issue. Okay, hold on a second. I, I'm gonna interrupt here. Look, we are conservatives in this audience. And that's, that behavior right there is how progressives behave. Screaming out, yelling out. That's not what we do as conservatives. Ma'am, so if you want to submit a question, ma'am, if you'd like to submit a question, we're happy to take your question. If you'd like to hold your own town hall, I'd be happy to come and submit questions. Uh, look, I, and I want to address this oath issue. Is it possible that somebody violates their oath? Of course it is. I mean, people are human beings, and people do bad things, and our nature is sinful. That's that's beings are. Is it possible that the majority of members of that august body in front of literally cameras from all over the world with their own delegations at home watching them and controlling their fate, that all of them do that? And we're talking 34 states, right, who've come in and agree. No, that's ridiculous and absurd. So in answer to your question, yeah, absolutely there are people who would violate their oaths. Would everybody? No, that's just, that's a that's a mass hallucination. That's ridiculous. Yes, and so I think related to that, I think you've pretty much answered this, but I'll make sure I've asked it because it's come up a couple times, is preventing a state like California from doing its liberal things there. One is we'd be limited to the issues spelled out in the, in the calls to convention. If California proposed some liberal constitutional amendment, it would be ruled out of order. And again, 34 of the delegations just to understand how, what the, how that works. Not a, of the 19 states that have adopted this resolution, all of them were controlled by Republicans. There's not one single state where the Democrats have controlled a legislature that has moved anywhere, nor will it, unless something dramatically changes. The reality is that to get to 34, that means at the time of the convention, just let this settle in, at the time the convention is called, 34 states will be controlled by Republicans. Why? Because if a state, let's say Wisconsin, which passed it last year, let's say they have a bad election year and they lose the House and Senate, you know what they'll do in Wisconsin? They will repeal this, this, this resolution. Guaranteed, 100%. Not a single Democratic voted for it, they will repeal it. What does that mean? That you don't get the 34. So if you could be at 33, and if one state repeals it, you're back to 32. You have to have 34, which means at the time of the convention, the people appointing the delegates to the convention, 34 of those states are going to be controlled by Republicans. Now, again, I, I don't see under any, 
any possible reality where you're going to see a mass psychotic moment where people decide to abandon their oaths, get recalled, get tarred and feathered back in their home state for, for abandoning their oath and violating their, their, their commissions, that somehow that's going to happen. And if it did happen, they'd be recalled. And they'd have no ability to do anything. So California can go ahead and propose something. It will get nowhere. The legislatures control the delegates, not the other way around. And sure, there may be some bad actors from California, Massachusetts, trying to do some crazy things. 34 of the delegations will be Republican appointed. Okay. And uh, maybe related to that, Mark, you could come. We have a, a, in Iowa, along with other states, we have a faithful delegate law that we're passing separately from the call to convention. So, um, or I can so we have, we have a law that, uh, that we're pass running through as well that would make it a crime for a delegate to a convention like this to, to violate their oath of office. So it, it makes it a criminal offense. Um, so I have several questions that deal with, and this is one of the top objections I'm sure we all hear, who picks those delegates? You've touched on it. So article, nowhere in Article 5 does it spell out who picks the delegates. Even Congress is unclear, but in 2012 to 2017, they issued reports that said they thought they would choose it themselves. How will, how will that solve anything? Or just other questions to ask about. How, who, how do we know who picks the delegates? You know, I, I hear this a lot, and people are scared about how the delegates will be chosen. Uh, and I actually, it's one of my favorite parts of the whole thing because it's an exercise in federalism. Because the state legislatures will decide how to choose their own delegates. Uh, some states are actually passing delegate selection acts, which specify exactly how they'll do it so they know in advance. Uh, other states have not done that. Most states don't deal with that until after they pass the resolution. But every state will decide, and it can be as many delegates as they want to send. They could send 100 delegates, they can send one delegate. Uh, but one thing we know for sure from history and precedent is that it is one state vote, one vote. This is a convention of states. It's not a convention of populations. I've heard the suggestion that it'll be, according to the Electoral College, this is not a convention of populations. Uh, it's not a convention of people. It is literally a convention of states with each state acting as a sovereign. Each state gets one vote. By the way, can you imagine if the big states said, hey, we're going to get more votes, and so you small states just shut the heck up. The small states would leave. There wouldn't be a quorum because why would they participate in that? Right? They would essentially be locked out. We do know, actually, by the way, there was one convention in the history of the United States where they tried to change the rule from one state, one vote, uh, and they took a vote on that to see if they could change that rule. Of course, that vote was held one state, one vote. And of course, the small states prevailed and it stayed one state, one vote. So we know essentially that the state legislatures will be in charge of picking the delegates. I love that. And I love that each state will do it in its own way. This is, we are the laboratories of democracy. And I love that. Yeah, the idea that Congress would stick its nose in here. First off, it is, if, if, if you're, if there's a, a fight between the legislature and the Congress, the legislatures win. I mean, it's perfectly clear from everything that happened at the Constitutional Convention and the writing subsequent to it that this was a method to bypass Congress so Congress couldn't, <laughs> couldn't inject themselves into this process. It was specifically designed so Congress wouldn't be involved. And so for Congress to say, oh, well, we're going to be involved is crazy. First off, 
Congress can't pass anything anyway, so that on why they think you could pass something like this, as controversial as it would be, but even if they tried, the, the record is so clear for any court to say, well, they're, the, under Article 5, that is I improper, and number two, the states can simply ignore it and call and, 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 and convene and appoint their own delegates. It's the idea, and this is, this is maybe how we in our own minds have, have been sort of warped by, by society today, that somehow that the federal government sits on top of everybody. They don't. States have rights, and states can exercise those rights. We, we, we sort of act like Stockholm Syndrome, that, that somehow or another we're, we're, we're captured by the federal government and they're the all-powerful ones and they can do anything to us and they can step in and they can violate this. No, they can't. You know what it takes? It takes legislatures the courage to stand up and say, no, you can't do this. We're sovereign entities. And by the way, we'll do this our way. And Bill, I want to add one last thing because I know there was an email going around the legislature today that said that Congress will select the delegates and control the process. I don't know who wrote it. They claim to be a scholar. You know, maybe, maybe they're a scholar of the Simpsons or Beavis and Butthead or something. I'm like, it's so bizarre. Imagine this. The founders were sitting around a convention and they said, hey, look, and this is what happened, by the way. You get Colonel George Mason stands up and he says, we got a problem. The document gives Congress the power to propose amendments, but doesn't give it to the people acting through the states. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. I get in trouble. People claim I'm misquoting. It's called paraphrasing. And, and so Mason says that, and he says, are we so naive to believe that a government that becomes a tyranny will ever propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? Right? This is what our opponents would have you believe. So immediately after, in order to avoid federal tyranny, they all voted to give Congress control over the idea of calling a convention of states. Yeah, I mean, it's absurd and ridiculous, and the idea that somebody who calls themselves a scholar would even write such a thing, let alone anybody would believe it, I, I just don't understand that. Two more process-related questions. I'll wrap them together. And it's, how long do we have, if, once we hit Magic 34, how long do we have to call a convention of states? Can Congress just sit on that? And then once something is assuming something comes out of this convention of states for proposal, what's the ratification process look like so for I'll, that? I'll, I'll take the first part, you can take the second part. As far as Congress sitting on this, Congress will not sit on this. But just let me, scenario. At the time the convention is called, 34 state legislatures will be controlled by Republicans. I mean, that's just a fact. You can argue, you can't really argue that, because no Democratic legislature is going to pass this. So if this happens, 34 states will be controlled by Republicans. What does that mean? Well, right now, 29 are controlled by Republicans. We get to 34, there's probably a pretty good chance the Republicans control one or both houses of Congress. Probably a very good chance. Because if you get to 34, I mean, you got states like New Mexico or Washington or Maine that are Republicans. And so I'm just saying, Michigan, there are a whole bunch of states that, that are purplish to blue states that have to be Republican to get this done. That's why it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy, it's hard. But the, the idea that a closely divided Congress or one controlled by Republicans is not going to certify what is their constitutional responsibility, it says in the Constitution, it says, shall call. It doesn't say may. The, 
there, there is a, a clerk that, that certifies whether these aggregate. It's a ministerial function. And it says in the Constitution, once you get to 34, and we have been very meticulous in all 19 states, as we have here in Iowa, to make sure all of the resolutions in its operative language are identical, or darn, darn, darn close to identical. So they have no wiggle room to say, oh, well, this was different. We keep them the same, and it says Congress shall call. And uh, I have no concerns at all. I don't think Congress will get within 100 miles of this thing. They will let it work itself out. I think they realize, contrary to what some people in this room believe, they realize the chance of anything happening at that convention is pretty small. They're not worried about it. What they are worried about is the fact that 34 states actually rose up. That scares them, and they're not going to mess with them. Just the opposite of what you think. 34 states have now gotten so mad that they have stood up to Congress, the big bull on the block, and they are not going to poke that bear. I'm telling you, they will not do that. All right, Bill, give us a tough one. Close us with a really tough one. Okay, so uh, a tough one. There are lots of tough ones here. We like the tough ones. We like the tough ones. Okay, um, so EPA versus West Virginia and the carbon emissions. Uh, that's the, what. What changes do you expect in the reach with or in the reach of agency? How can rain in federal agencies when we have federal I mean, Supreme Court? It's, we're we're a little bit in the weeds, but that's a good decision. And uh, really, what we're talking about there is the idea of what's called Chevron deference. If you hear this in the news. What that really just means is some absurd concept that the court invented saying, when an agency decides what its regulation means, then we allow them to make that decision, essentially. It's, a, it's very deferential of the courts. And I'm, I'm gonna give an extreme example. An agency writes a, a, a regulation that says uh, the sky is black, and then they come back and they say, well, we interpret that to mean the sky is white. And the courts have traditionally said, well, you know, agency wrote it, agency knows what it means, we're not gonna get involved in determining what that means. And, and basically what it does is now you have agencies that the powers delegated them to essentially to write the laws. Uh, Rick talks a lot about this. I mean, literally just in Obamacare, hundreds of times it said the secretary shall promulgate such regulations as are necessary, blah, 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 meaning the agency makes the law, the agency decides if you're in violation of the law. They charge you with a violation of the law. They tell you what their interpretation of the law is that you violated. I mean, it's just a kangaroo court, essentially. And so uh, in the West Virginia versus EPA, the court trimmed back pretty substantially on Chevron deference. I think that's a really good thing. And I think what we're going to see maybe in this session, maybe in the coming sessions, uh, I think we're going to see Chevron deference overturned where the agencies are gonna have the same standard as anybody else going into court and saying, look, this is why we believe this is a reasonable interpretation. This is what we meant. They might look at the administrative record. That's gonna do a good job of helping to trim back around the edges the overreach of the administrative state. Unfortunately, it doesn't gut the administrative state and that's what we really need to do. Yeah, to just in, in, in sum, it's a great step forward. It, it basically means that these Regulators can't create regulations that are not, that's not, that they don't have the power to create. That, that they just can't make it up as they go along and, and pull things out of, out of whole cloth. Uh, 
Having said that, all you have to do is read the newspaper every day and the SEC and the FTC and all these other agencies are continuing to do it. Now, you, they may say, well, they, get, they may get, but they're all doing it. They're not stopping. They're not slowing down. And, and they're, they're going to continue to do it, and they believe someday that, you know, the court will change. And, you know, if you keep throwing all this stuff out there, that, that you know, the Supreme Court won't be able to deal with all of them. And, and even by, by, do, by doing this, you put fear in people and uncertainty into businesses and people who are regulated that they act according to the regulation even though they never become law. So the, this is, the, this is the, the, just the insidiousness of the, of the deep state. They know that they're doing things that are probably going to be held unconstitutional. They don't care because for now they've got something out there that scares people into doing things that they would otherwise do, but now because of this proposed rule they won't do. And so they win. And they'll continue to do that. And so the only way you stop it is you make it crystal clear they cannot do this, right? And one of the other things, and this is the term limits thing I talk about all the time, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm personally fairly ambivalent about terms of, limiting terms of, of members of Congress and the Senate. I mean, I, I think a long-term limit might be good. A short-term limit would be a bad idea, in my opinion. But the idea of actually limiting terms of people in the deep state, like Tony Fauci and others, is a great, great idea. You know, and something, again, it's the idea of going after where the problem is. And the problem in Washington are bureaucrats dug in over there, protected by civil service, and who, who, who know they're gonna be there, who were there before presidents come in, and they're gonna be there afterwards, and they just hunker down and do what they want. And those are the people that you gotta turn out. All right, so I think, and I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to ask you to comment on, we've got several questions about Iowa legislative process and such here. So maybe I'll, I know you two have spent a lot of time talking with a lot of legislators. So maybe you comment on your, your thoughts on working with legislators and the prospects. And I might ask Senator Green if he can comment then too on where this is in the Senate. But the questions go things like, um, um, I can't get a straight answer out of my Iowa representative. Where does COS, COS legislation stand? in the current legislative session. I'd say, first of all, you have the wrong legislator if you can't get an answer out of them, but that's, that's a bias. Um, how many Iowa legislators currently support, support it? Just different things like that. So um, maybe get comment on that. And if John, are you, John, are you up to commenting on where we are in the House a little bit with it? Okay. Well, thank you for uh, coming out. Thank you for uh, joining us this week. And Introduce uh, yourself, too. Sorry, I meant to introduce oh, Jesse sorry. Green. Uh, Senator Jesse Green. Um, So uh, I just got elected in 2020, and honestly, uh, uh, I was kind of neutral on this uh, prior to running for office, but then after seeing how much uh, spending uh, has uh, happened under Republican control, uh, that's when I flipped from neutral to supporting this 100%. And, and if, I'm, if I get behind something, I, I want to fight 100%, uh, give 110% to it. And uh, last year, we, we fought tooth and nail. Uh, to uh, have the, the right conversations and, and the tough conversations. And, and uh, I, I feel that uh, we did get to the, the right amount of votes in the Senate. 
uh, but we've had a big changeover in the Senate uh, because of redistricting and, and other factors. Uh, so it's uh, reshuffled the deck. And but uh, uh, Senator Schultz has uh, um, he's given the subcommittee. It appears at three o'clock on Wednesday in room G15 at the Capitol. Uh, it looks like Dawson, uh, Senator Cranbrink, and uh, will be on that subcommittee. So. If you're looking for uh, something to do, uh, uh, show up and, and listen to the conversation. It'll be uh, good. And um, I believe that we have the support in the state government committee to get it out. And, and at that time, we'll reassess the situation and, and whip the votes and see where we're at with uh, the new legislators. So, um, but uh, again, uh, thanks for coming out and, and thanks for all you guys don't have done. It's a great discussion, and so I thank everyone for coming out and uh, asking the questions and getting a chance to explore the answers. Um, obviously, this is something that does generate a lot of conversation. It generates a lot of conversation in the House. Um, we just have had some conversations. First and foremost, one of the things we did uh, in our committee process is at least make sure uh, that we began the process of uh, making sure our delegates um, had to follow the direction of the legislature and made it a crime if they stepped out. And part of the reason we want to get that done is for whether you're against it or for it, it at least has some mechanism to uh, control the delegates and something happens to them if they don't uh, control it. We're still in the process in the House of uh, getting the other part of that's the most important part to move forward in the House. And there's a lot of diversity uh, in the uh, um, House on this issue. It's an issue that divides conservatives, uh, divides deep conservatives back and forth. There's a lot of information that goes back and forth, and it is hard. I will tell you, because I, I look at things and I read it, and it seems so stinking clear to me. And I don't understand the emails that I get that share a perspective that doesn't seem grounded in the Constitution but grounded in some thoughts that are outside the Constitution. And so I would say we still have work to do in the House. We have a lot of division in the House on this issue. And uh, so you, on whatever side you're on, you better speak to your representative and you be clear in what you're asking them uh, to do and to support. Um, we do have good leadership on this in the House, um, but uh, obviously we're a very diverse group on this issue. So we need you to step up and share your thoughts and your ideas for us to take the next step forward. And I want to add one thing to that and, and maybe ask you a question. You know, one of the things that we experience all over the country is we travel around and we talk to legislators. And you know, I, I would say Rick and I have probably spoken to as many state legislators as anybody in the country. And we get the legislators say, say, look, I hear from a lot of people on this issue. And sometimes they'll say to us, oh, and you know, it seems equally divided. And I always ask this question, by the way, if, if you're a legislator and you're getting email from our folks, that email is generally going to contain their name, their email, their phone number, their address. And if the legislators ask, we give them a spreadsheet of all the people in their district who signed the petition in support so that they can personally communicate with those people if they want to. And then I ask them, is that what you get from our opposition? And they say, oh, no. And those come from all over the country. And we don't allow that in our organization. And we specifically train our people not to do that, not only from not all over the country, but not even out of district in the state. Uh, 
And so this is a really important thing. If you're in this state, if you support COS or if you oppose COS, it's really important. These legislators, they're handling so much stuff, it's unbelievable. I can't even imagine it. And this is true in every legislature. They are overwhelmed. The amount of bills they have to read, the amount of issues they have to be well-versed on, and on really broad uh, subject matter range. It's really overwhelming. Do them the courtesy of reaching out to your own representative, because that's who they represent you, and the person in the next district over, or the next Senate district over, they don't represent you. And, and so I'd be curious about your comment on that, Bill, maybe. What it, how do you see the distinction of in-district versus out-of-district emails and contacts? Yeah, I'm sure we all view it a little differently. So if I'm getting a lot of emails, a lot of times we get these canned emails, right? It, it all reads the same. So all that does for me is gauge that that's an issue that's of importance or a hot issue at the moment. But I, I tend to look at my, my, my district is what I'm looking at there and uh, what they're saying, and, uh, and uh, those are the ones I tend to respond to. I had to do the math for someone when we were discussing an education bill. I had to do some simple math for them. And when they wanted to know why I hadn't responded to all of their emails, I said, well, I got 300 emails that, this, this day on that. Just to look at emails, one per minute, that's over three hours just looking at emails. So, so, so we, we're going to prioritize responding to our constituents, and those personalized ones make a difference. But frankly, if you're part of a system, and you don't have time to write a personalized email, and all you can do is click on the thing that's going to let you send one to your, your, your legislator, that's still going to at least get my attention, my attention that my, my constituent took the time to contact me. I think with that, if you have any yeah. closing comments. I'm happy to. You, why don't you close, and I'll do a final close. Uh, I just want to thank everybody for coming. Uh, I'm planning on sticking around. I'm, I'm not going anywhere tonight, I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm happy to stand here and... Um, and take whatever questions people want to come up and talk more about it. Um, I'd like to have everybody support in this room. I know a lot of people came here who very much are against it, and I respect that, but I think the answers that we've provided uh, respond to all of the concerns. I mean, I, I think I understand people have fears, and that's justifiable, but. There are also irrational fears, fears that are not based in reality. And I think a lot of the fears that, that have been expressed here are not rational fears. The idea that, that state legislators are going to destroy their own careers for nothing by going to a convention, violating their oaths, getting recalled, getting criminal sanctions, and having nothing good happen because they're recalled, so they, they will accomplish nothing by doing so. That's an irrational fear. No rational human being, much less the state legislature, who's, who's been selected by his peers to represent them with all that comes from representing all of your colleagues at this major convention, and they're going to violate their oath of office in a failed attempt to destroy the convention and be recalled and be sanctioned, what politician in their right mind would do that? Much less in mass do that. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an irrational fear. It, can, it will not happen. Human beings do not act that way. They don't. They don't. They're not self-destructive in mass. It is a self-destructive act to do that. Just understand that in front of the world, not just the country, the world. Who 
Are, could there be one or two sick people who want to go out in a blaze of glory and, and do something irrational and okay? Yeah. But to threaten the convention? First off, they wouldn't because they'd be with call, recalled before they do anything. So again, there are rational concerns. A rational concern is not much may pass. Very little may get ratified. This may be a you know, sound and fury signifying nothing, nothing happens, but I don't, and, and that, it's possible, very possible, that no amendment would get passed. That is a rational fear. My counter to that is simply this. Sometimes having the meeting and doing it is worth doing, just to send the signal to Congress, just to prove to members here in this body and in legislatures that this is something they can do, and it's not a runaway, that it's not a disaster that rational people come and make rational discussions just like they do every day all across this country. It's not to say they make the right decisions, but they don't go and, and commit criminal acts in the legislative chamber. Tell me where that happens. Tell me where, where somebody, show me the record of members of a legislature, members of Congress standing in, at a legislative session and doing a criminal act doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But you're saying it's not just going to happen with one person. It's going to be a mass group of people who are going to do this. It doesn't happen. It's irrational. So I'm perfectly capable and happy to deal with rational concerns. And there are some questions about how things operate. Those are all legitimate questions. Yes, we look to history. We look to precedent, just like we do on a lot of other things. The United States Senate has a set of rules, but you know what I also have? They have a set of precedents. And we actually, in the United States Senate, they actually run by precedent. They're not in the rules, but they have precedents that have been established. And that's how things run in so many bodies, in courts, everywhere. It's about precedent. What has been done in the past? What has been approved in the past? That's how we operate. We operate our lives like that. We don't go around and live our lives based on rules, we base it on how do we live our lives? What is the precedent? And see, so to, to, to sort of throw that away and say, oh, that doesn't mean anything. It means everything. It's how we live. It's how every legislature functions. It is how every court functions. And to say, well, we don't know if it'll function that way in, the, in a convention. Well, of course it will, because that's how every, that's what they do every day in their own legislative bodies an irrational fear. So, I, again, I get it. You're conservatives. This is new. It's different. It's scary. But courage is not the absence of fear. It is overcoming that fear for a higher purpose. And we have a higher purpose, ladies and gentlemen. Our country is in trouble. People ask me why I'm going to be turning 65 this year. I've done pretty well in my life. I've done a lot of incredible things. But you know what? I look back over the last 30 years, and I look at the country that when I first came into Congress, and look at what's happened since, and I can't help but looking myself in the mirror every morning and say for 30 years of blood, sweat, and tears, sacrificing, taking beatings, doing what I could to save this country, I have failed. This country is not better off over the last 35 years. 
And as I look around this room, most of you have been here during this time, and it was on your watch too, not just mine. I'll take more responsibility because I was actually in a position where I could do something. I tried, I failed. I could go home, I have enough money to retire, I could spend time with my grandkids, I could do those things. Or I could fly to Des Moines tonight and fly over wherever else later in the week or the week after. Why? Because our country is failing. And I've been given some ability to do something about it. And so have you. So have you. We well, say, well, I didn't run for president. I wasn't a senator. I'm not on TV. No, you're not. But you have the ability to influence your sphere of influence. And you're every bit as culpable for the failure of this country. This generation, if we let this pass and we let this country fail, will not be called the greatest generation. Maybe you don't feel bad about that. I don't like to think of myself as part of the generation that failed America. I don't know about you, I don't want to be part of that generation. I am not going to go quietly into that good night. I am going to fight. And I'm going to fight my friends who are on the other side. And I do have friends on the other side. And I know they care. But their solution is death to this country. It is doing nothing. It is doing nothing. And if you think we're at a time in this country where doing nothing is acceptable, when you see the culture destroyed and decaying, when you see our balance sheet just, just melting down, we've got entitlement programs that are not going to be addressed, people are going to get hurt because of it, our children, my grandchildren, no, no, I'm not going to do nothing. Will I take the chance? Are there risks? There's risks getting, walking across the parking lot. Don't talk to me about risk. My God, have we become a, such a country that we're afraid to take risk? You're Iowans. You're leaders. You ask to lead. You ask the country to send its best and brightest to come here, to walk through your ranks, for you to judge them and to suggest who should lead this country. How dare you not lead this country? How dare you ask for this privilege and then shirk a responsibility that you have to save this country? I have faith in Iowa. I love this state. I have a, just this weird attraction to this state. But you, you, I have it because you proved to me that you're different. You're not a follow the pack kind of group. You're willing to lead. I pray that you do. You know, Bill, I think you said something important, Rick did, which is we have friends on both sides of the issue. And that's really interesting. It doesn't happen that often. On, on most issues. Even the people who oppose us on Convention of States, 98% of issues were on the same side. So it's kind of weird to be on opposite sides of this issue. It's also important to note that all of us can't know everything. I mean, it goes without saying, but I gotta say it. We can't be experts on 
everything. And, and so we have a limited amount of things that we're experts on in our own life. You know, I'm an expert on Article 5 because I've spent nine and a half years doing this thing. If I was going to talk to somebody about the, the grid or something like that or pipelines, I'd go to somebody else whose expertise I trust. I'd look to public figures who I admire. I'd listen to the talk show guys that I admire, like, you know, Limbaugh, formerly God or Hannity or Levin or Shapiro or Matt Walsh, really smart guys. I know all of these guys. And I would look to them and I would say, well, what are they saying about this particular issue, whatever the issue is? Tucker Carlson. You know, I just, anybody out there like Tucker Carlson? Yeah, I just did an hour with Tucker. Great guy, right? Big supporter of convention estates. And so what I can tell you for me is on the issue that I don't understand, I'm going to look to people like that. And I'm going to, I'm going to, am I cutting out here? I'm going to look to people like that, and I'm going to get their opinion, and I'm going to look at the weight of opinion. I'm going to say, who's for this and who's against this? And I'm going to draw that line down the middle, and I'm going to say, the opposed are, and in this case, I'm going to tell you, it's literally every single radical leftist group in the United States of America. It's Planned Parenthood, it's La Raza, it's MoveOn.org, it's George Soros, it's Hillary Clinton, Russ Feingold, the former socialist senator from Wisconsin, just wrote an entire book saying that this was absolutely the most dangerous thing for progressivism in the United States of America. I happen to agree with that, by the way. It's not a bad book, we just have a different conclusion, right? So I look at that and I see all these people are opposed. It's literally, and, and I say this, it sounds outrageous. I say every one of them, you can look it up yourself. They signed a press release five years ago, Good Friday, led by Common Cause and Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. It's now over 250 groups. It's every communist, America-hating, baby-killing, racist, progressive organization in the United States of America stands against what we're doing. And on the pro side, for what we're doing are people like the late, great Senator Tom Coburn, Jim DeMint, uh, Rick, I mean, all of these people, some of your great legislators. It's all those talk show hosts I just named. It's all the nationally known conservative legal scholars. Now, people will tell you, I know my Uncle Bobby, he's at uh, the junior college where he teaches constitutional law. He's against this. You know, Robbie George at Princeton is for it. Randy Barnett at Georgetown is for it. Uh, Chuck Cooper, who was the national attorney for the NRA for decades, who was Reagan's personal constitutional attorney, is for this. So on one side is every hateful leftist, every hateful progressive in the United States of America is against this and speaking out and spending money and spending, sending lobbyists against this. And then all the conservatives that you know and trust are for it. I'll just tell you this. There has never been a day in my life where I woke up and I looked in the mirror in the morning and I thought, yeah, I'm with George Soros on this one. Never, ever, not once in my entire life. And I talk to people sometimes, and I give them that list, and you know what they'll say to me, some people? They'll say, I don't care. And I'll say, so that doesn't even make you think? Like, it doesn't even make you reconsider your position that maybe, maybe I just am missing something on this one? And sometimes they'll say no. And my response is, if that's your response, then you're not a thinking person. And there's nothing that I can say to you. Because if you look in the mirror and you see standing behind you George Soros and Hillary Clinton and Russ Feingold and Planned Parenthood and MoveOn.org and La Raza and all these hateful, horrible, progressive organizations that want to destroy our country and you look over your shoulder and they're on your side and you don't think about that and you don't care about that, then you got to ask yourself, well, maybe I'm not a conservative. Maybe I'm a Soros conservative. Maybe I'm a Hillary conservative. Maybe I'm a Planned Parenthood conservative. So if you're 
confused about this, and I don't blame you for that. It can be a complicated subject. Go home and look in the mirror and ask yourself, which of those groups of people do you stand with? I literally, this happened today, Rick. I got an email, we're on these lists, from Common Cause, which is funded by George Soros, bragging about beating us in the Montana legislature. Right, so for those of you who are in here who are against us, congratulations, you're with Soros. I don't believe you're with Soros. I believe you're wrong on this issue because I don't think you're evil. I don't think you're with Soros. I don't think you're with Planned Parenthood or MoveOn.org or any of those organizations. Even if you're opposed to COS, especially if you're opposed to COS, you're opposed to all those people. So just look in the mirror and ask yourself why you're standing with them now. And I want to close with a quick story. My, one of my favorite stories of, of one of the great patriots, early patriots in this country, is the story of John Quincy Adams. Most people know he was a president. Most people don't know that he served in the, in the House of Representatives after he was president. It's so bizarre, like hard to imagine doing that. You're the guy in the White House, and then you go serve in the House of Representatives. He's a backbencher. He serves for 17 years in the House of Representatives. If you go to the House of Representatives today in Statuary Hall, a lot of you guys have been there, there's a plaque on the floor because John Quincy Adams died in the House of Representatives on the floor. Statuary Hall was actually in the House at that time. They took him off into what's now the ladies' cloakroom. That's where he actually passed away. But he was there 17 years. And during that time, he developed a reputation. His nickname was the Hellhound of Abolition. It's really the only thing he cared about. Didn't care about any other legislation. Didn't want to talk about anything else. Didn't want to know about anything else. Drove his colleagues on the floor crazy. In fact, they eventually passed the John Quincy Adams Censure Act to allow them to censure him if he were to speak about abolition again. You know what Adams did? He spoke about abolition because he knew he'd get a five-day censure trial. And then he could talk for five days about abolition. He was so despised by his colleagues and even by the press at the time that towards the end of his career he was asked by a journalist, why do you keep doing this? Nobody wants to hear about abolition. Nobody's going to vote for abolition. You're never going to get abolition done and yet you just keep doing it and annoying everybody. And John Quincy Adams said, duty is ours and the results belong to God. I think that's incredible. There's a man who fought and died fighting for abolition and he never saw abolition. But during the last year of the last term of his time in the United States Congress, there was a young congressman who was just fascinated that he was in Congress with John Quincy Adams. He considered him a hero. And so what he did is he followed him around. He learned everything he could learn from the former president. He learned his three-part plan for abolition. He studied, he followed, he, he was mentored by him, so much so they became close friends. And when Adams died and he was carried to his final resting place, one of the pallbearers was this young member of the House of Representatives. After his first term, which was John Quincy Adams' last, he was called home. He was told, you're not going to run again. The parties controlled things a lot more closely back then. They enforced rotation in office. So he went home. Later, he ran again. He lost. Later, he ran again. He lost. The third time he ran, he was elected. And you and I know him as the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln. John Quincy Adams did his duty, which was to fight for abolition regardless of the outcome. And when he died, he had no idea that he had actually succeeded. He succeeded in planting that seed in the heart and mind of Abraham Lincoln. And because of that, I would argue John Quincy Adams is actually partially responsible for abolition in this country. So I would implore you, as you leave here tonight, and I'm happy to hang around like Rick said, I would implore you, remember, it's not the results. It's not our job to get the results. Our job is to do our duty 
and the results belong to God. Thank you guys for coming tonight. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com slash pod.